0: Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offsprings, your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Bless you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. And the Megillah blessing, Baruch Adonai, Elohimu Melacha Olam, Asher Kit Amikra Megillah. Blessed are you, and our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us from his commandments and commanded us regarding the reading of the Megillah. So, Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And he said, Hold out the shawl you are wearing, sometimes translated kerchief, and grasp it. She held it, and he measured out six barley. This is after they've, he's awoken, after she's asked him to throw the toleta on him. Now he's decided, hey, Ruth wants to marry me. It's amazing. So I'm going to see what I can do about that. So he says he measured out six barley, or some translations say barley corn, and set it on her. Then he went into the city. Now the sages talk about, the commentators talk about, one of the reasons that he did this is so that He didn't want there to be any thought that there had been any type of impropriety. So he sent her away with barley. He had a reason for it, but one of the other reasons is that she would look to be as if she had come to get barley, not for any other bad reason. And it's also important to note that in the Hebrew, Hebrew is a language that uses male and female gender in in its speaking, and he refers to her in the male gender in Hebrew. Hebrew. To, in, to give the impression that he's not talking to a woman because it it's not really appropriate for a man who's not an uh, unmarried man to be alone with an unmarried woman. Or a married man to be alone with a, a woman of any kind. <laughs> married or unmarried. Mm. Uh, anyway, it says here, <clears throat> moving on, yeah. moving on now, let's see how, chapter Verse 16. She came to her mother-in-law and said, How do things stand with you, my daughter? So she's wondering, are you married, unmarried? <laughs> what did he say? How'd it go? Give me the report. So she told her all that the man had done for her. Now, this is indicative of the fact that Ruth is a female. Because she said she told her all. A man would have just said it went well. <laughs> How did, tell me what happened. It, it, was good. it, it turned out good. Like Rebstein says, that's all. Somebody calls. What did what did so and so say? Ah, oh, he said everything's fine. So what? You picked up the phone. He said everything's fine. And you hung up. And she wants to know the whole transcript. So she told her all, all, call, call, that the man had done for her, and she said. He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, it's interesting to point out that he didn't actually say that. He did not say, Take these six barley corn so that you don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. But Ruth, in her wisdom, said, I'm going to create some shalom bayit here. And I'm going to make sure that this man's, God willing, future mother-in-law will believe that he had her interest in mind as well. It wasn't just about me. So now Naomi says, oh, he sent me barley corn. What a minch you should make. He should be your husband. God should bless you both. And uh, now whenever he comes over and she sees him, she'll say, Boaz, sent me barley corn. Ruth knew this. Boaz, of course, being a man, wasn't thinking about that. (laughs) Remember, as I tell our daughters, there are six people in every marriage. There are six people in every marriage. There is the person to whom you're, you're married or going to marry, and then there are their parents and your parents. So keep that in mind when you're looking for a spouse. You should interview the parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then he said, <clears throat> sit patiently, my daughter. Then she said, Sleek up." she said, Naomi said, sit patiently, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest unless he settles the matter today. The righteous do not let things lay by the wayside. Pa- uh, um, procrastination is not a righteous trait. somebody said (laughs) capiculo 4 verso 1 Boaz dice Boaz meanwhile had gone up to the gate and sat down there just then the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken passed by and he said come over sit down here ploni almoni And he came over and sat down. He then took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit here, and they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, the parcel of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech is being offered for sale by Naomi, who has returned from the field of Moab. I resolve that I should inform you of this effect. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you are willing to redeem, redeem. But if you will not redeem, tell me that I may know for there is no one else to redeem it but you, and after you, I and I am willing to redeem. <clears throat> so this is what Boaz is saying to uh, the other Redeemer, whose actual name is Tov. But We'll get to that, Bezrat Hashim in a second. I want to share some, some insights now, <clears throat> pardon me, and um, tie some things together, God willing. An insight now from the Midrash Rabbah, the six-hour test. She gave him, or he gave her rather, six barley corn, correct? There's a reason why there were six. There's a number. There's a reason for everything in Scripture. Nothing in Scripture is superfluous. Everything has a purpose. So the Midrash Rabbah, the insight's talking, uh, this is Midrash Rabbah, the Midrash Rabbah of Ruth 7.1, talking about the six hours. Adam was created on the sixth day of creation, and he was paired with Hava in the seventh hour of that day. This is from Pirkei, de Rabbi Eliezer, and also in the Talmud, Sanhedrin 38b. His test was to resist his desire to eat from the tree of knowledge for just six hours until the advent of the shabbat when the messianic era would have been ushered in the evil inclination would have been held no sway over him Do you realize that had he just waited one more hour not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then the messianic era would have begun at that moment and there would never have been sin death pain and childbirth whatever now i want you to think about this for a moment i don't want to go off on a tangent so to speak About this, but I just want to reiterate that the very first mitzvah that God gave to mankind was what he can and cannot eat. And many people today, because we talk about kashrut, and, and the reason, by the way, the reason why God said that to be the first mitzvah, we learned this if you listen to the Aliyah day, which I hope that you do, you learned in the Aliyah day that eating kosher is the foundation for holiness which is why that was the first mitzvah he gave man, because the foundation of holiness is eating kosher. And so today, many people think God doesn't care what you eat, whatever you want to eat. J.C. made all foods clean, all those kinds of things. It doesn't really matter. But in fact, if you think about it, our inability, not really inability, our choice to disobey God's food law is why women have pain in childbirth today. It is why human beings die. It is why we age. Let me say that again. It's why we age. (laughs) My wife was recently going upstairs into our room that needs needs teshuva. We have a room upstairs that's like a junk room, room. it's a spare bedroom, it's a a hot mess, it needs teshuva. So she was up there trying to make order out of chaos. Tohu and bohu, get rid of it. So she's going through all the pictures. And so naturally when that happens, you spend seven hours sitting down looking at pictures. 24 years of marriage. I was looking at some of those early pictures when I took her to the river walk where you're first, uh, you know, courting. (laughs) And I had all this nice hair, beautiful. It was all black. Brown, whatever. And that hair has left me. And it is because of the tree. It's because of eating of that tree. Now, I'm really trying to make a point here. The reason you have pain, the reason you have suffering, the reason we have evil in the world is because we disobeyed a food law. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for the Mashiach to show up and get rid of food laws. That's the problem. That was the cause of the problem. You see? Very important that we understand these realities. So anyway, he ate and we died. So it says his test was to resist. He couldn't resist. If he had he resisted, the Mashiach would have come. Everything would have been great. Someone might have said, but I would have been born. That's not true. All of our souls were created at the same time in Gan Eden. You, just not, you wouldn't have had to endure what you're enduring now. Think about it. He failed. The Jews encamped at Sinai were challenged to wait just six hours until Moses descended with the tablets. They failed. Boaz, however, passed his six-hour test. By restraining himself, they say, for that period of time, he merited to beget Obed the roots of the divinic monarchy, and the Mashiach, who will complete the rectification of the sin of the tree of knowledge. Because Boaz kept himself from sinning with Ruth, we talked about this last week. Ruth, as the sages point out, was an exceptionally beautiful woman. She was 40 years younger than Boaz, and so all of those things coupled together, it was a strong temptation on Boaz to, in, to be inappropriate with her at that moment. But he resisted that temptation, and not only that, he gave her six measurements of barley, and it was all to signify that he had, he had made Tikkun for the failure to wait by Adam, and the failure to wait by us in the wilderness. And as a result of his ability to resist for six hours, because of him, the plus one Mashiach would come and actually undo what Adam had done. Now, I want to take you to Ma'am Loez, who brings this down. He says, according to a different interpretation, Boaz and Ruth both grasped the criteria her chip or her or her apron she was holding it and he was holding it ostensibly he was helping hold it while he's putting the corn in there but they point out that in those days if two people came into an agreement that one of the things that could be done is that you would both hold on to the same garment that you're tied together now if you have i agree to buy Haver's land and, and Haber would grab part of his cloak, and I would grab the other part of the cloak, and as far as we were concerned, it was a done deal. And so Boaz and Ruth, it says, both grasped the kerchief as a contractual gesture, a sign that he undertook to settle her case. And he measured out six, shesh, six of seah, that is one cob enough for one meal to demonstrate that this would be the last meal that she would have to take home because from that point forward, she would be eating her meals in her husband's house. So gentlemen, I said last week, if, if, a, if a woman says, throw your tolito over me, just and if she says, grab the other end of this handkerchief, just know what's going on. <laughs> And the men are saying, yeet, yeah, can tell." <laughs> Interesting, ma'am, Loez points out also to this verse, verse 15. It says, in the gematria, havi, habi, bring, has the value of 17. The last letters of the phrase, the kerchief that is upon you, okay? The last letter of that phrase in Hebrew, if you take the last letter of each of those three words it spells the word keter, which is crown. And the reason, this is the hint, Mayam Loez cites, this is the hint that out of her would come 17 generations of kings after the erection of the temple. From her would come 17 crowns. And eventually, of course, would become the king who rules over kings, the Mashiach. There were six grains, I pointed out. It was also a sign that from Ruth would descend six specific Zadokim. And it says here that those, those Zadokim as a righteous man, the six righteous people that would descend specifically from Ruth was, of course, David, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the three that went into the fire and we're saved, Daniel, and of course, the Messiah. David is described with six different attributes in 1 Samuel 16:18: Skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in affairs, and calmly of appearance. And the Lord is with him. And Ma'am Loez says, perhaps this is why the Magan David has six points. For the six Zadokim that came for Ruth and the six attributes of David, the father of the Mashiach. By the way, just to point out, it's not the star of David. That's what it's often called. But it's really, the actual name is David, which means a shield of David. So the barley represents the, uh, the six. The six Zadokim that Ruth would, would be giving birth to. Now... Boaz put that barley in her bosom, right? Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, or 38 rather. It says, Give and it will be given to you. They will return to your lap a beautiful measure, pressed, crammed, full and overflowing for with the measure that you use to measure it will be measured to you now let's read chapter 37 I mean verse 37 first and read this again because this is a picture you have the redeemer who is standing there next to Ruth and he is literally pouring into her bosom a whole bunch of barley that, that she can barely take home six barley corn. Now, what is Ruth? Ruth is someone who has judged favorably. Ruth is someone who was not anti-Semitic. Ruth was somebody who said, let your people be my people. Ruth was somebody who, even though she was a Moabitess, she considered it a a joy to become a Jewess. And even though some people looked down upon her, and remember from earlier Drash on on this Megillah, we were saying that some of the workers in the field Didn't want Boaz to have anything to do with Ruth because she was from Moab. But Ruth said, you know what, that's fine. Remember, I said, I taught that in Moab, she was literally a princess. Literally a princess. The daughter of the king of Moab. And she chose to become a pauper so that she could come under the the wings of the Mashiach. You realize that in in the Gospels, the reason why some of the, the leaders did not want to follow the Messiah... It was because it meant that they would lose their high, in their minds, I'm not saying they would, but in their minds, they thought they would lose their high position. This is why the the Sadducees said when he was entering the city, their big complaint was the whole world is going after him, meaning they're no longer listening to us. And the reason that was important is because they were the agents of Rome. Those were corrupt men, unfortunately. And they were hirelings of Caesar, and they had sway over the people. But now all the people are listening to this, this nobody from, this ga, from Galilee, this hick, this redneck, from Galilee. who What good? Who, what good comes from Nazareth? They were prejudiced against the Galileans. And so here you have Ruth who said, "Not only do, I, I'd rather just come under the Messiah's wings." I'm going to leave my my comfort and my royalty. Everybody's bound to me. I get carried around on a chariot. And now I'm going to leave all that and and, and, and go with my mother-in-law who doesn't even have shoes. She's so poor. Because she did not count. She counted what she had as nothing compared to the knowledge of of the one true God. So it says in verse 37, Do not judge others and you will not be judged. How many of you ever heard it said, by the half time, you've ta- you heard me teach, that we're supposed to judge favorably. Judge favorably. I talked about this on the Aliyah. The reality is, we got to judge favorably. Now, people have taken this to an extreme, and they've said, you're not, you're not, we're not allowed to call out sin, because we can't, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Mashiach is talking about here. You see your brother or sister sinning, you call that out because that's we're called to do that if you have a reasonable belief that they will listen to you. Now, if you believe that if you're going to call them out and they're going to not listen to what you say, then hold your peace. But if they're your brother or they're your sister and you see them do something, you're, they're about to put a big old piece of cheese on a cheeseburger and you go, whoa, 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 oh, whoa. You take them down. Take them to the ground. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, you've got to intervene. That's not what we're talking about. Not judging is, hey, don't judge me. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about judging people fairly, considering them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And when they sin, acquit them. It says here, You're not, that, that, don't hold others liable, and you won't be held liable. Acquit, and you will be acquitted. We have to have a a high standard. This This is where the ethic in our country comes from, supposed to be in our modern times. Unfortunately, we haven't seen this very much, but the person who is charged with a crime is supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, not on television, not on the radio, not in the gossip circle, but in a court of law. When you have somebody on trial, even for something like murder, you're supposed to be able to convict that person based on the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, which means if there's any doubt, you have to acquit. And the Sanhedrin, contrary to popular belief, was big on that. They would go out of their way not to kill someone. Why? Why? Because if the person deserved death, then they deserve death. And there's, if, the, if the facts were the facts, that's what it is. But ultimately, that person is the image of the living God. The reason you say, well, then why was the Sanhedrin so willing to crucify the Mashiach? Because they were corrupt. If you want to be honest, those really weren't real Jews on the Sanhedrin that day. Y'all, you know, they were Jewish. Don't get misunderstand me. Amen. They were Jewish, but they were puppets of rome at that time and that's why it was so corrupt so here we have the mashiach saying do not judge others and you will not be judged do not hold others liable you will not be held liable acquit and you will be acquitted and then it goes right into give and it will be given to you they will return to your lap a beautiful measure pressed down cram full and overflowing that's what happened to ruth Because Ruth judged favorably, because she was not in it for her own self, but she was there for her mother. She was, as we said last week, she was for her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law was for her, and Boaz was for God. Everybody was looking out for somebody else. And as a result, Ruth was given the blessing of becoming the mother of the Mashiach. Seventeen crowns came from her. Talk about cast your crowns before Hashem. This is all because of what took place with the barley. Now, I want to bring down some insights if I can from Cephas Amos on the on the Omer, because I want to tie this together if I, if I can with some things about the Omer, because what we're seeing, there's a there's it's not coincidental as we all, as we know already, there's nothing coincidental in scripture. But it's not coincidental that all this is going on in the context of the barley harvest. All this is going on in the context of counting the Omer. And remember, we learned during the Megillah of Esther, when we studied that, that Haman was ultimately defeated. He said, out of his own mouth, he said, Mordecai, you have defeated me by your Omer. Because when it came time, Mordecai thought that Haman was coming to kill him. And so he and his disciples decided to start studying the Omer. And when Haman found him, he was actually coming to get him to go put him on the fancy horse and take him around town. And he said, I gave the king all this silver and all this gold to have you killed. And you are defeating me because of your Omer offering. So it says here, Some insights to the Omer. Why is the Omer related to this story of Ruth? And Cephas MS brings down, among many things, that when we we count the Omer, you understand, by the way, that every day that you count the Omer, you are lifting up the Omer. But why an Omer? Why barley? It says, By separating a small quantity of the first harvest, reshit ketzikim, and offering it to Adonai, we symbolically undo, at least to the best of our ability, the confusion between good and evil caused by Adam's sin. Every day that you count the Omer, you are bringing clarity between good and evil. You have to understand something that this story about Ruth and Boaz is, is much more than a nice romance novel. It's so much more than a, a, a nice-looking Moabite woman who became a Jewess, getting married to the, the king of the town. This is about clarity coming in. This is about the Mashiach being introduced on the scene. This is about good and evil finally being delineated. This is why you can't say that the Mashiach did away with the Holy Torah. Why? Because the Holy Torah tells us what is good and tells us what is evil. And if you get rid of the Torah, now we don't have any more clarity. My friends, that's why you... I've mentioned this because it's it's current events. This This is why you have so many people confused today about whether or not it's okay to be homosexual or not. And I'm talking about... When I say people confused... The people who are lost are always confused. Because when you're in the darkness, you're in the darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Anybody been in darkness that dark? You literally can't see hand in front of your face? That's not the people I'm talking about that are confused. The people who are confused are the religious people. The people in the churches, in the synagogues. Those people are confused. They don't know. There was a, a, a bill recently passed in Alabama, thank God, okay. yes. all but forbidding abortion to include in instances of rape and incest. Which, by the way, uh, I saw a statistic, I think it was Sarah posted it, that an incest pregnancy that led to an abortion happens like a fraction of a percent of the time. Same thing with rape. Now, both of those are horrible, and, and, and I can't even imagine going through that, I just, I can't wrap my head around going through that, but all I can say is it's never okay to kill somebody else to get back at somebody else, and that's never going to make it better. Murdering somebody in order to get back at somebody else is never going to be helpful, and then in most cases, if it's not a baby, that would be illegal. But you have religious people who are on record. and I'm not going to mention who they are. You can just look at the news. You can see. Saying that that bill goes too far. What are you talking about? You see, this is where the confusion comes in because the people who say stuff like that are not Torah observant. They don't have clarity because they don't have the delineation between good and evil. That's, what I, that's the point. That's why Torah observance is so important. It helps us make distinctions between what is allowed and not allowed. And by the way, there's no gray area. It either is or isn't. And by the way, it's not left up to us. <clears throat> Therefore, it's not subjective. It doesn't matter who you are. By the way, just as an aside, complete aside, because this question came up again I had a random, not a random, I had a divine encounter with somebody at, at a grocery store I'd never go to. <laughs> is this is a, a, a potential holy spark. But the question was asked me, and this is, not, this is the, the second time in as many weeks that this question has been asked, so I want to let everybody know here, because y'all might be confused too. Judaism, Jews, we're not a, it's not a race. We're not a race. Now, don't look around. I'm just going to tell you. There are people in this room that are not all the same color. Don't look around. Yes, that is true. I know y'all are just now discovering this. There are people here that are black. Some that are... I said don't look around. Some that are white. Some that are brown, some that are uh, 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 shades in between, some are Asian, right? I am the first French black Jewish rabbi, Native American, and since I used to teach martial arts, I can throw Asian in there too. I'm all of it. I'm cold, I'm cold. So it's not a race. In case you're wondering, and you're maybe you're watching online, it's not a race. By the way, that's how, that's the number one way that anti-Semitism gets propagated because it, we're a race. We're not a race. Now, we're in the race, but we're not a race. Anyway. And no, that's worth the price of admission. So it says the... Um, it says, "Thus, the elaborate sifting process that produces the barley brought as the Omer offering symbolizes the sifting of good from evil that reserves the, reverses, rather, the effects of Adam's sin." Wow. I want you to understand, on the, on the cosmic level, how important it is that every night that you stand up and count the Omer, yeah. you are sifting. Yeshua said to Kepha, the enemy wants to sift you. Well, now we're sifting him, <laughs> sifting out. It says, there can be no better time than Pesach, the off of the Elmer, which has the effect of undoing mankind's basic sins. Man, don't you understand that here's Ruth getting barley? Thank you, Hashem, for her protection. And she's about to bring forth the Mashiach who is going to undo the basic sin of mankind, which, by the way, was disobeying what he wasn't supposed to eat. This is, you know, I know people think that I harp. They probably do. Maybe, I don't know if you do or not. But you might think that I harp on Kashru. But I just have an understanding that's a fundamental problem. You've got to go back to where you first messed up. The true test of teshuva the sages teach is not whether or not you're sorry. It's not whether or not you're regret. It's not whether or not you've asked for forgiveness. The true test of teshuva is when you're put in the very same situation, do you make a different choice? That's how you know whether or not you've made true teshuva. So it says the exodus was the end of our dual enslavement. Can't serve two masters. Once we were finally liberated from Adam's curse, we could begin to take the steps to reverse the curse of his sin by bringing the Omer offering. By the way, for those of us people, maybe we were in this boat at some point in time in our lives, but for those who say, well, I just can't, I can't, I could never be, you've had people tell you this, I know you have. I could never be Jewish. Why? Because I could never eat kosher. I could never do away with whatever they like that's not allowed. Which in the grand scheme of things is not very much. Do you realize, you know, we can't have shellfish. We can't have a shark or an eel or rats, buzzards. We can't can't have... Oy, uh, oysters or we can't have uh, what do you call those things? Octopuses. No snakes. You cannot have you can't have any insects. I know. Except for locusts. You can have locusts. And y'all can have the locusts. I'm just saying. that you can eat it. Right? But look at all the stuff you can't eat. Look at all the fish you can have. Salmon, halibut, sea bass, trout, mahi-mahi. I mean, I'm leaving stuff out, but carp, bass, striper bass, everything. Look at, look at all, the, all the meat you can have. Beef, chicken, lamb, goat, deer, elk, giraffe even. No, it's true. You can have giraffe. I'm not going to eat a giraffe. That's a lot of meat. That'll feed feed a family. (laughs) But isn't it true that we always want what we can't have? It says... Hashem pleads with Israel, offer the Omer to demonstrate your faith that all worldly blessings, even your harvest, originates from me. And the merit of that faith, I will bless you. In contrast, the blessing of the non Jewish world comes at Sukkot when Hashem's kindness prevails. In other words, when we are given the Omer as Jews, we have the ability to bring blessing even in, even in a time of judgment. That's what Cephas Medz is talking about in this section. I didn't read the whole section, but He's saying that as a Jew, not as a non-Jew, non-Jews don't have this ability. Okay, I'm going to say that and people are going to be like, man, you're so against non-Jews. No, I'm not. My goal is to get you to become a Jew. I'm selling you a product. As a non-Jew, you do not have the ability to bring down blessing in a season of judgment. Everybody gets rain at Sukkot because that's when divine grace prevails. But the rest of the times of the year, we need the Omer count. And you say, well, how what do I do? I'm a non-Jew. What do I do? Oh, that's good. See, here's here's the platinum package God offers you. <laughs> Today, for a very, very, very low price, circumcision on your end, and a very, very high price on his, his end, the giving of the Lamb, yeah. that took away the sins of the world, you can become a Jew, and therefore you can have blessing even in times of judgment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, one more. Another, another insight here from from Is it okay? Can I continue? Yeah. All right, can I finish? It says, The Torah describes this period as Sheba Shabbaton Taminot, seven complete weeks, on which the Midrash and Vayikor Rabbah comments, when are they complete? They're complete when Israel does Hashem's will. Anything less than complete devotion to Adonai will... Adonai's will is especially perilous at this time. On the other hand, if we succeed in elevating ourselves to the exacting standards of the Spirit, we will be spared a harsh verdict on Rosh Hashanah. We can do this by totally devoting ourselves to the Torah, to the source of all completeness, as the psalm says in Psalm 19.8, the Torah of Adonai is perfect. We cannot help but do this if we only recognize that all our material blessings flow from the Torah. And remember that the Messiah is the Torah made flesh. Now, I can hear in my head, maybe might be watching, and, and somebody who's brand new might be saying, wait a minute, see, I know you're trying to work for your salvation. No, no, no. We are counting the Omer. What, what just happened? Pesach. Pesach is where we were set free by the grace of God we're already saved yes. see when you buy a cup from the store you buy a silver cup it's all tarnished you buy it you redeem it right then you take it home you polish it to bring it back to its original glory that's the omer account the buying is the when the master came and bought us the tarnished cup and so every day we polish a little bit he polishes a little bit of it so that we can shine like we were originally intended to shine and then he sanctifies us. Now, this next insight is very, very good. He says, What else can we do to merit divine blessing at this time? The Torah itself gives us an answer lift up the Omer. By raising the first produce of the new agricultural year to Hashem, we demonstrate our belief that everything that's material comes from Him as a gift. So, in other words, the very first thing that happens after we're set free by the blood of the Lamb the very first thing that happens is we have a barley harvest. So the first thing we do as a redeemed, saved, set-free people is we take that very first fruit of the earth and lift it up and wave it before Him as a symbolism to say, everything comes from you. You know, my wife found, a, uh, found out through my genealogy that I'm related to to um, Louis Hebert he was a Jewish well we suspect Jewish we don't have 100% confirmation on that but he's from La Rochelle France which is where my families are from in this very heavily Jewish area and went to Nova Scotia which then was called Port Royal and then after the war uh, French Indian War all of those family members of mine went to Louisiana and became the French Cajuns very Jewish New Orleans area. So the question is, is Mr. Herbert Jewish? He's also the one who founded Quebec City. And so the question is, we're not really sure exactly. There's nothing definitive because you had to kind of pretend you weren't Jewish in order to come to the new world from France. But what we do know is that in Quebec City there's a statue of him and he's waving the Omer. Oh. <laughs> waving his first fruit of, om- of, of barley. Because he's the one who brought that to, the, to Quebec, France. I mean, I'm just saying. So it says here, lift up the Omer. By, by raising it, we say God is the one from everything comes. In one sense, the Omer ceremony can be re- reviewed as a reversal of creation. Check this out. Now, this gets into tithes why your tithing is so important. It says, The sages frequently say that Hashem created the universe, yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. By waving the omer, we, so to speak, we turn the yesh, a material something, back to the ayin, nothing. The total spiritual state from which it originated, thereby affirming that everything we are and everything we have was created by Hashem. It is also interesting to note that the gematria of the word Omer 3.10 is equal to that of yesh, something. So whereas God created something from nothing, we take something back to nothing and thereby do two things. We affirm that everything we are comes from Him. So the minute we wave the Omer or the moment at which you give your tithe faithfully, the 10% tithe, you are affirming that God created something from nothing. And by the way, here's that something to give back to the nothing, to affirm that you're the source of everything. That's number one. Number two, when we take our something, which when I taught about tithing, I mentioned that the tithe represents all of who you are. When you take that something and give it back to the creator, the something from nothing, you become nothing nullifying self. So by giving your tithe, that is the ultimate way in which we humble ourselves before the living God. And God says, I hate the haughty, but I love the humble. And if you humble yourself, I'll lift you up. But if you're haughty, I'll take you down. I hope y'all get excited about counting the Omer and and, and tithing. I want y'all to get excited about it. If you're scared about it, if you you are uncomfortable when I start talking about tithing, you need to make teshuva. You have a spiritual problem. No, I'm serious. If you are uncomfortable when I talk about tithing, you have a spiritual problem. And you need to deal with it. I'm serious. If it makes you uncomfortable... That's because there's something wrong right here. Because we'll, uh, well, you know, we spend money on what we want, right? Stupid things, right? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I look at the lights. (laughs) (laughs) We spend money on stupid things, right? My daughter, Hadassah, says, you don't need another gun. I said, this is about saving protecting life. No, oh, man. Okay, oh, I'm sure. serious. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. <laughs> so he writes, Waving the Omer in order to earn blessing ensures our prosperity not only during the period, through, through, in this period, but throughout the year. The Torah describes this time as the seven complete weeks, weeks whose merit sustains us for the whole year. By waiving that, that offering, which in this case, because we don't have a temple, is that we are saying to God, you are my complete source. And at the risk of belaboring the point, that's what we do when we bring our tithe. It's the realization that everything comes from him. Now, a couple more things really quickly. Got to wrap it up here. The Omer, Yeshiahu 30, that's Isaiah chapter 30, verse 32, points out that the Omer is the battle of... It, call, it actually refers to the waving of the Omer as the battle of waving. Why? Because this waving of the Omer, he, the, the Cephas Emma points out, is the major way in which we fight against Amalek. And he points out, we talked about Haman, but he points out that if we keep in mind, when did Amalek, which represents doubt, when did Amalek attack Israel? During the counting counting of the Omer. And so he points out a connection between, between Moses lifting up his hands to fight against Amalek, and when we lift up our hands to wave the Omer. the way that we fight against doubt right now, my friends, is counting the Omer. I'm going to leave you with one last thing. One last thing I'm going to share with you right now. The, the new face of the Sabbath. There's a lot more we could say about this story, but at this point, Ma'am Loez gets into a discussion about the marriage ceremonies. It takes several pages to go through it. And he starts to talk about the, the Sheva Barakot, the seven blessings that we say to a married, a married couple every time we get together during that week of marriage. We say the Sheva Barakot. And he points out a halakha that we say the Sheva Barakot especially when there is a new face in the crowd, a panim chadashot, a new face. He says, among this we celebrate at the feast all seven blessings are recited, not only... Uh, or excuse me, uh, not only uh, the, the Asher Barah, but every, all seven blessings are recited when there's a new face. In the view of some, even is this is recited um, at Grace After Meals, Ramban writes that a new face includes one who's not heard the seven blessings yet for this event. Some say that it, re- it pertains to uh, great men and scholars who show up for, the, for the, one of the meals. They're, consult- they're considered a new face. And it says, in another's times it says that the day of the feast itself, if, if the day of the festival itself, or feast rather, is distinguished, that means if the meal falls on a Sabbath or a Yom Tov, the Sabbath or the Yom Tov is called the new face. Yeah, I know, this is an aside, it's off topic, but I wanted to share this with you. Because you missed it. Y'all, are, y'all were asleep. You're thinking about Oneg already. <laughs> what the halakha is saying is that if you have a married couple and there's a seven, week, seven days of festivities, so every time there's a meal, there's ten men together, we say the Sheva Barakot. Wow. And we say it especially if there's a Panim Hadashot, a new face in the crowd. And the new face is a person. <clears throat> Either somebody who hasn't said it before, or a scholar or some dignitary who showed up and like, hey, we have a panim chadashot. We need to say the, be sure to say the sheva barakot. The whole thing. But this is also saying that the Sabbath can be a new face. So when Mashiach says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and if you've seen my face, you've seen the face of God, wow. he's the panim chadashot. Wow. But what do we know? What do we know?